Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning again. So it feels like a million years ago, this story. I was uh, just a couple years out of seminary, and there was a, a church, uh, a little church plant that were looking for a lead pastor. And so I decided to um, put my hat in the ring, and I went there. It's out of state. And this church was a, a neat little church plant. It was next to a college campus. And so the church plant was a couple years old. It was starting to grow, um, and uh, there was some vibrancy that was taking place there. Well, then something happened. The, the leader that, was, um, that really had the vision of the church plant, the, the, the pastor that led the church plant and, and recruited all the, the leaders um, was there. That was really that dynamic force. There was a, a metropolitan city about a, an hour north of this little college town. And they ran a, uh, a prostitution sting. And this lead pastor was caught in soliciting prostitution. And not only was the, the, the pastor guilty of solicitation, but it came out as the, the leadership of the church processed this with him. It, it came out that this was not a, a one and done. This was a pattern. This is how he had been living. This, is, this instance just happened. He happened to get caught. And so the church was in this very fragile state because their leader of course, had to, to step down and be removed from ministry. We, we've been in this series of wondering about asking one question. If you, if you had coffee with Jesus and were able to ask one question, what would that question be? And so we've taken in some different questions. And as a teaching team, we said, we have to have at least one question about sex, Right? Pastor Jedediah conveniently took vacation on this week, <laughs> I noticed. Um, but we wanted to, to ask the, the, some of those questions. And, and you know, there's a variety of, uh, of questions that we really could ask related to sex and sexuality. Why is scripture in the church, why do they seem to be so focused on it? Uh, why are the churches so strict on the articulation would you be willing to flex a little bit on that strictness of sexuality? Jesus, why does it matter so much? Some of us might ask, Jesus, why is it so hard to live within our biblical guidelines that we've established? And, and, and at the end of the day, Jesus, does it really matter that much? Can't we love you and honor you and just kind of do what we want in that area? So we wanted to take a morning to, to reflect and, and talk about this. And, and I believe that part of this, it's such an important, I have a conviction that as, as a church, we need to talk more about these important issues. We need to talk more about sex and sexuality. We need to talk more about celibacy and singleness 
and marriages, all of those kind of things. We need to talk about those things. But I also think it's important that we talk about sex and sexuality in particular because I believe that sex and the sexual drive is so powerful that if we don't steward it well, it will burn our lives down. That I believe very easily any one of us could be that church planting pastor that had fallen into this, this pattern of brokenness and sin. He was married, he had a beautiful wife, he had young kids, and yet he had been fallen because of this sex drive into this pattern. So I think it's so very important that we handle and talk about even the things that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. I'll try and throw in some jokes as best I can. <laughs> the first one is this, Marsha Matheny. She was preparing, she's the one who prepares the outline. And she looked at the outline and said, oh, I hope my husband Mark doesn't get too excited for church this morning. <laughs> Mark, I had to throw you under the bus. I just <laughs> trying to break it, just... Thank you for your service, Mark, to us. <laughs> so let's talk about this. Now, as usual, I, I think there is a, I, I think there's a short answer to these questions that, that Jesus would have. And I think the short answer is this. Why do I care so much about who you sleep with? Because sex is so powerful, it can burn down your life. But also, he would say, sex is a God-given thing. And when you live into that well, it can be beautiful. It can be so meaningful. It can be even sacred. And that's what I want for you all. That's the short answer. I think the long answer, I want us to turn to some of the Apostle Paul's reflections, which is found in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, before you turn there, I'm going to do something a little bit different that I don't normally do. I don't like to read from uh, translations that are considered paraphrase. What that means is the translator will look at the original Greek and the meaning, and they'll, they'll paraphrase some of the words in English, if it's translated in English, they'll paraphrase what they believe is the intent. It's less word for word. Really, no translation is truly word for word. The, the Greek to English is too difficult for that. But a lot of translations try and go word for word. Um, there's paraphrases that do intent of the author, what they believe, and they make translations sometimes in Paul's writings in particular, in, in Corinthians, 1st and 2nd, it can be particularly challenging because the Corinthian church sent a letter and had all these questions of Paul. And Paul is interacting with these, uh, with these questions. And quite honestly, sometimes the translators don't know which are the questions of the people and which are Paul's words right? Eugene Peterson, he is the translator who brought us the message. 
And um, I often read from the message in preparation of preaching from other translations. Because so often he nails what I believe to be Paul's words and intent. And so, I, so hold open your translation here. We're going to have, um, we're gonna have uh, the, the message up here. There's my stool here. Let's read this together. Are you excited? A little sex talk with Pastor Eric. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's start from, we're going to start at verses 14. Uh, can we go to the scripture there? Um, Paul is speaking into these questions, and one of the questions is, does it really matter how I use my body? What I eat? what I drink, and who I sleep with. So we're, we're going to focus in on the sexuality part, but it's a larger question of the Corinthians. Some were making the argument, I mean, my soul, if it's good with God, I can do whatever I want with my body. And Paul says, God honored the master's body, Jesus, by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. And that resurrection will be physical. And it matters. It matters in this life and in the life to come. Until that time, remember that your bodies were created with the same dignity of the master's body, Jesus' body. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. That's not mine. That's the Apostle Paul's, right? Okay. Um, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. I love that translation. Is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture... He quotes Genesis 2.24 now. The two shall become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never, quote, become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sins, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God, given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. 
Now we're going to go on and read a little bit into chapter 7, but that's going to be a little bit later in the message. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, he's creating a theology of sex. Interesting. A theology of body, yes, but a theology of sex and intimacy, and he's even going to get to marriage. And, and his first point, and then we're gonna get, he's going to get real practical in chapter 7, but his first point of this is that sex is not just physical. It's not just skin on skin. That, that we are a person that is connected, that our, our hearts and our minds, our souls and our bodies... There's a connection. We, we've been created as these whole people. And that there's something beautiful when we're living in connection. You see, what our culture does and what culture generally does is takes away the sex from the rest of who we are and makes it its own separate thing, right? Its own separate subject. And, and Paul is first and foremost is saying, don't you realize it's not just a physical thing. It's as much spiritual mystery. It engages the the whole person, in many ways, our understanding of sex is too focused, is too thin, is too shallow. He's saying, friends, you have to understand, broaden your sense and your understanding of sex. And then what he does is he goes back to the very first marriage, as Jesus often does. He goes back and he points, he says, learn from this instance. Learn from the sacred scriptures that reveal that first marriage and what it's about. Remember Adam and Eve. We remember that story, right? Adam was created and he's in the garden and everything was good, and, he's, and, and the Lord is bringing, he created animals, and he's bringing animals to Adam, and Adam is naming them. He's stewarding the creation as he was called to do. And yet, all these animals that come by, they were so different than Adam. There was, there was not this connection and compatibility and, and even, now remember, there's no sin in the garden yet. He, he's perfect, and yet there's one thing. God has been saying the, the sky, the creation is good, the ocean is good, the land is good, everything is good, 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 and yet there's one thing that's not good. Remember what it was? There was no compatibility even though Adam was made in the image of God, there was no... And so, you remember the story. Paul's asleep, he takes a rib, he creates a woman. And Adam goes, that's what I'm talking about, God, yes! Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, yes! And then it says, what does it say? For this reason, a man will leave his husband or his father and wife, and they will they'll cleave, they'll, they'll be united, they'll, they'll be one. 
Yes, physically. Yes, think about a, keep it PG-13, but think about a, a man and woman, a husband and wife coming together. But it's not just physical. There's this sacred spiritual dynamic of the two going one. In fact, Paul will call this a profound mystery. If he ever uses phrases like that, profound mystery, then you pay attention. And what is he talking about? This mystery, he's saying, how are two people one? We we don't know all the dynamics, but, but somehow... They're they're wrapped together in this life of one. I have a diagram for our little sex talk. Mark, don't get excited. It's about the least sexiest diagram that you could find, okay? Can we go to this diagram? It's a picture of you. Now think about this for a moment that you are not just a physical being, but you're a full person. You, you have a body, but you also you have a heart and mind. There's a, a depth to you. You have a, a, a little spirit within you that connects. You have a will. You have the ability to, to communicate and speak And from the depths of your heart, you can contemplate and think. And what Paul means by a profound mystery is somehow all of you in a marriage, when you come together, is in a beautiful and even sacred way, merges with another. I was going to have Natalie create a merging, but I thought that might be too much for some of you. (laughs) Too much for Natalie, yes. And so this merging of the two, and he says, Corinthians, Springs folks, if you just understand sex, in just one small compartmentalized aspect of your life, You're missing it. You're missing it. There's something beautiful and holy and even sacred to it. Now, that's a profound mystery in and of itself, this merging of two people. But Paul goes on. He goes beyond this sacred union between two people. He does this in 1 Corinthians 6. He also does this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, he's talking about marriage. And he's talking about husband and wife. And he says this. He quotes Genesis, again, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, cleaved, one to his wife, with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's talking about that. Now look, get the switch. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait, what? I thought you were talking about marriage and sex. He's saying in some beautiful way, 
this, you could call it a horizontal merging. In some beautiful way, this becomes a picture of how we get to be united and one with the living God. And somehow this picture helps us understand a little bit of this picture. In fact, Paul, uh, Jesus would say this. He would say, to, about you and I, his disciples, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one. And he's not just talking about marriages there. He's talking about the sacred community of Christ Jesus. One. As we are one. In fact, Jesus, the Son, is likening this oneness within the Trinity to how we get to be one. He goes on. I in them and you in me. I, Jesus, united with them and the Father and the Spirit. In Jesus and this one, this one, this sacred union Together, that's the context of how Paul is inviting us to understand sexuality. So you can go back to that diagram and you can think in some beautiful way how we are merged with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the Spirit literally enters into you and I. That so much that Jesus would say in another place, that, that we will make our home in you. That Paul will say, the actual Spirit of the living God will come and give life to your Spirit and live within you. There's this oneness that we don't talk enough about in the Christian life. You see, most cultures distort sex into something different than its intended purpose and role and context. We remove sex and sexuality from this profound mystery, as Paul calls it, I call it this mystery of oneness, right? That it's meant to be, yes, a, a fire that burns brightly and passionately in our relationships with one another and with God. And yet we allow the fire to get out of the fireplace and it burns down our lives. If you want to honor God with your sexuality, with your body, you need to begin 
to reflect and think and understand this profound mystery of oneness, vertically and horizontally. You need to understand sex and sexuality through Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. There's this beautiful consistency there. All right. So Paul just lays out, I'm getting hot. I don't think for the reason that you would think. I'm just kidding. I think it's the lights, all right? All right, but then Paul lays out this beautiful theology of sex, and then he gets real practical, okay? So in other words, he's saying, understanding that, all right, let's, let's deal with the, the myriad of questions that you have given me, okay? And a couple things to be mindful of before we read the practical, that Paul is writing to this church that's in the city of Corinth, The city of Corinth. Rome, in general, was a pretty sexualized culture. The city of Corinth, especially in the city of Corinth, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. Do you know at one point, at the uh, uh, high point of the, I'm trying to be mindful of my words, uh, of, of the temple, there was a thousand priestesses and, prosti- and they were prosti- priests that were prostitutes and part of going to the temple was uh, sexuality and sleeping together and all of that. And that's the city that Paul is writing to about sex. Can you imagine that? A thousand priestesses that were prostitutes as well. Right? Honey, where are you going? Just going to the temple, sweetie. This is the third time this week. Can you imagine? So imagine that culture that they're living in. Now also it's important to note, he's writing to to people on, on different ends of a spectrum. One, probably because of that culture, they're like, you know what? I just think we should not have sex at all. Even married couples. We should remain celibate. Paul, is, it good? is sexuality good or is celibacy the best way to go? There was a, just, a, you know what? It's too dangerous. It's too full of fire. Let's just toss it out. And then on the other spectrum, we, we've talked about that group of folks that they were like, it doesn't really matter what you do with your physical body. I mean, that's just sex. We know she's not really a goddess. I can just, you know, do that, but I'm, I'm good with Jesus. So he's speaking to two ends of the spectrum. All right, let's read now. Go on, 1 Corinthians 7. So remember, he's laid this theology of sex and sexuality in the body. And then he says, chapter 7, verse 1, Now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Remember, some were just saying, let's just toss it out altogether. Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them. I love that. 
but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Is that statement any less true today than it was back then? No. We don't have temples for sex goddesses, but we have temples, right? We'll talk about that in just a moment. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time. If you both agree to it, some were saying, well, then should we just abstain from sex altogether? Remember, there's that group. And it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, okay? But only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not... uh, I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is not for any, everyone. God gives the gift of the single life to some the gift of the married life to others. There's so many things I really enjoy about that translation. In fact, you could just read that again and again and and clear up some misunderstandings about sex and sexuality that have been communicated from the church based on that passage of Scripture. But let's just make some observations, uh, a few observations of how we live this out. He's saying, yes, Sex is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. But we need to treat it with respect and reverence even. Best analogy is a fire, that there's a power in it. Fire can do tremendous things and provide for us, and yet fire at the same time can burn down our house. And part of, perhaps it doesn't come quite as clearly in this translation, but one of the first things that most authors say is, you need to flee from sexual immorality, right? By You need to respect this power. So you need to reduce the sexual uh, availability, all of those things in our lives. So when he says, you don't mix... You don't go with a prostitute. In other words, Paul was saying, uh, it's not okay, guys, to go to the temple. You know that, right? I would say in our culture today, just one of the first steps is we say, boy, respecting the power of temptation, I need to walk away. I need to be mindful of those things. I think we have a little temple right here. This is my analogy, right? Little cell phone. Literally at my fingertips are a gazillion images 
that can burn my house down. How dangerous is that, right? We live in, right, sex sells. You've heard that, and everybody's trying to sell their their product, and, and so what do they do? They throw a little sexuality on the product. I mean, it could be ice cream, and they throw sexuality, right? Because we're like, ooh, right? We need to be intentional about reducing and taking away all of those things that are triggers for us. I I wanted to try and talk about sexuality in the term of appetites, all right? Because there's so much shame and condemnation wrapped around sex and sexuality and even temptation. And I think it's really important that we divide temptation from sin. So would you think about sexuality in terms of appetite? First is, as human beings, we have appetites. Appetites for food, for entertainment, for intimacy, for sex, for things. And so often, sin happens when we do not steward those appetites well. We don't use this word much anymore in church. We probably should use it more. Gluttony. That's considered a sin. Is food a bad thing? No. Is it, is it good? Uh, do we desire food? Do we hunger? Yes. Can that food get out of control? That, that hunger, of course. That, that's what happens. I, I'm not exaggerating here that I could eat pizza every day of my life. Maybe it's because I was raised in Chicago. I don't know. But I could, yes, right? I could eat pizza every day of my life, right? That would be, and it's varieties, and it's good, yes, If I don't bring that appetite under the stewardship, I'd weigh 600 pounds, right? Just all of that, that longing. Think of the idea of greed or materialism, right? Things are good. God wants us to enjoy life. He gives us those good things. Do you have an area of things that you really, really like? Houses and clothes? But cars... They are cool. They are powerful. I think about cars. I'm already planning my midlife crisis car. I would love to buy a brand new car with all the bells and whistles. Kurt, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Kurt? Yes. He's my car man. Yes, right? It's there, right? If I bought a brand new car every year, what would happen? We would be in debt, right? There's an appetite, okay? Sex and sexuality is like that. Is that temptation bad? The reality is, is that as human beings, we're visually stimulated. And we see, that's why sex, sexting advertisement works. We go, ooh, what was that? Yes, that's not bad. It's what you do with that temptation. My my point is, is, friends, I believe that we need to talk about this more. 
We need to get real with one another more. I've had men confess to me the, the brokenness of sexuality. What I, I long for more is that men and men, women and women, that, that couples would just be honest more about the appetite, about the desire, about the temptation, and that we'd be able to have a real... Scott, how do you handle that temptation? Remember when I was young and single and a married guy, there was three of us that were single, and he said, hey guys, I just want you to know your sexual temptation does not get any less when you're married. And the three of us were like, dang it. That's terrible. Aren't we still have that? that yes, that, that's part of being human. We, right? We, we, we will continue to be hungry until we die for food. We'll continue to want things until we die will continue to be visually stimulated and long to have that. Now, so, so stewarding this well, reducing some of that, discussing that, journeying with one another. The other thing I would say is, um, is looking, and this is more of an emphasis of Jesus. Jesus names sexual immorality several times. He goes back and points to Genesis, but he always does this one thing that we, we need to do. We need to look at the heart of all those appetites, especially sexual temptation. Matthew 15, 18, and 19. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Some of you might remember, I think this was a couple years ago, but I talked about the Latin term where the root of sex come from. It means separation, right? So there was united male and female separated. So you could, you could say this, of a, of a branch, if you take a branch from a tree and you cut off the branch, you could say, you sexed the branch. You separated the branch from the tree. Reading a Catholic uh, priest on this, he said, all of us have been sexed because of the fall from God and from one another. We've been sexed. And part of the human condition is this longing, this loneliness, this desire for oneness and union, both here and here. And again, I love the, the translation where he says, no, 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 the, the, the meaninglessness, that, that when you have sex out of this becoming oneness, you're even lonelier than when you began. We think our sex and sexual activity is going to fill that, 
and it doesn't when it's separated from that profound um, mystery. Now, I want to go back to the diagram. Sorry, I keep going back to the diagram. In other places, Paul will talk about it in Corinthians. Jesus talks about it, but we see this in different places, that this diagram, this oneness, doesn't just happen in married couples. It doesn't just happen in married couples. I would say David, King David, was a beautiful example. We started with Psalm 63, right? This connection. David is saying, I've seen you in your power and glory. He touched that oneness with God and he longed to return to it. We also see in David's life and story, if you read First and Second Kings or, or Samuel, that David touched that with a friendship with Jonathan. And there's never any sexual language regarding Jonathan and David. Some have tried to find that sexual language. No, 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 there's no sexual language in that. And yet what David is saying that I found this friendship in, in Jonathan that's amazing. It, it's beautiful. There's this, this companionship that we share together in life. That's why I share so much about sacred friendships is that the community of faith is meant to be that place where we're experiencing intimacy, spiritual, emotional, social, even physical, not sexual, but we get to touch that and experience that, that the community of faith should be that place for singles and married couples to have that sacred friendship that truly meets that longing for oneness that casual sex never will. You understand? In fact, just reading one uh, Christian, and he's well-known, uh, Wesley Hill, he's well-known because he's um, he, he's only known same-sex attraction, but he holds to uh, the, the biblical view of marriage and sexuality, that marriage is heterosexual. And so he's challenging the church, and he's saying, church, would you be part of the answer of this sacred friendship and connection that my heart and my soul longs for. And praise God, his church and community is, is being that for him. How beautiful if we started, stopped fighting about sexuality and shaming about sexuality and we started living as a community of faith this sacred friendship. How beautiful would that be Another observation I would say is, um, is that we need, to, what Paul is saying is you need to steward your sexuality, your marriages, and your singleness well. 
Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. One, one observation is Paul is, as Scripture always does, is he's holding up the heterosexual context of marriage as what is, is the, the context of what this biblical sexuality is. It begins in Genesis, and it's affirmed throughout Scripture and by Christ Jesus and Paul. And so we press into this with, with graciousness, with kindness, with gentleness, with love. He doesn't compromise in terms of the Corinthian context and culture. We should not compromise in terms of our culture. In some key ways, we should be countercultural. And I want to suggest this is an important way. Not with anger, not with yelling, not with judgment and condemnation, but with grace and humility and love. And we get it. What a wretched man I am. We all have appetites. We have to steward this well. The, the, uh, another thing I want to point out is the word mutuality, which I'm so glad that, that um, he translates mutuality, is that in my generation in particular, some key places taught us that, that Paul was a sexist and he was a chauvinist. I would disagree, and this is a beautiful example of him saying, no, 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 you want to understand this profound mystery, this, this connection. He says it is a mutual serving and loving that, that you should be, husbands, you should be serving your wives. Wives, you should be serving your husbands in this way. It's not a right, see, I believe that we've allowed our culture and understanding of sexuality and even to creep into our Christian marriages. And he says, don't do that. No, then you're missing the profound mystery and the context that you're supposed to find sex and sexuality in. But a friend who did a men's retreat and a part of the retreat, it wasn't just focused on on sexuality. In fact, I still remember the title. He called it, Who's Your Daddy? But anyways, that's beside the point. Still there. But there's a portion on sexuality. And he said, Eric, all these married guys that were good guys, none of them are sleeping on a regular basis with their wives. They've not embraced a biblical view of sexuality, and their wives have not either. Christian couples are missing this point. Husbands, you should take these words. Wives, you should take these words and begin stepping into that beautiful oneness that God has created. All right. 
So why do I think that Jesus cares so much about who we sleep with? Well, negatively, yes. There's a power to sexuality that can burn down your life, but positively, this profound mystery of oneness that God has created us with him and with one another, we should be pursuing that as singles and as marrieds. We should be embracing all that God has for us. What a community. How beautiful would that be if we actually lived into, we fled and we removed ourselves from from that fire out of the fireplace and we pursued. That would be something sacred, something profound, something beautiful. Let's pray. So, Lord, the the depths of your revelation just continue to astound me, Lord. All that you have planned for us, Lord Jesus. Amazing and, and a beautiful, Lord. Lord, would you help us to stop living as the world lives, especially in the area of sexuality and intimacy and relationships, Lord God. Would you help us to live in response to your revelation, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to give you uh, the benediction, and then for those of you that need to go, go. Uh, we'll do one final song if you want to all stay for a song. But I also want to say this. For some of us, the fire has gotten out of the fireplace and we've been burned. And we're struggling with that. There are leaders in this church, whether you're a man or a woman, that would talk to you about that, would love you free of condemnation. Some of you are struggling in your singleness and some of of you are struggling in your marriage. There's leaders in this church that would walk with you. If you feel so led, just connect with me, email or a phone call. And I'll try and seek to connect you with a leader um, that will walk with you in that way. So would you stand for the benediction? So would you go? Would you embrace all of this kingdom life that he has for you? Mind, body, spirit. Would you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all your body, all your strength. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.